Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online. Also, those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie and Bridgeland, down in South Calgary and over in Northwest Calgary. Uh, What a beautiful day. Amen. Makes you want to just repeat the verse, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you. I think spring has arrived. I think. Okay. Last weekend, I gave my annual vision address in which I told the story of God's faithfulness down through the years in the life of our church and how we, he has blessed us and used us to introduce many people to Jesus each time we've stepped out in faith and made more room for people who are seeking God. Furthermore, as you just saw a moment ago in the video, Uh, We continue to grow and need more room, and so we're stepping out in faith once again, trusting God to help us raise the necessary funds to provide additional facilities, including a permanent multi-use facility for our growing Northwest campus. Now, I want to remind you that uh, we are not five independent churches. Even though we gather in different locations, we are one church and we function as one church. We have one governing board, one budget, one senior pastor, that be me, um, and all of our staff, regardless of which campus they serve at, are one team. We're here to encourage each other. And when one campus has reason to celebrate, we all celebrate. When one campus has a need, uh, we all join together and do all that we can to meet that need. It's not us and them. No, we are one church committed to the same Lord, to the same vision and the same mission. One church that just happens to meet in more than one location. So just want you to keep that in mind. Now in addition, with the sale of our West Campus, we're also trusting God to provide the funds we need for additional multi-use space here at Central Campus. A space that is especially needed Um, by our children, our special needs, and compassion ministries. But please hear me clearly on this. Most of this uh, multi-use space will also be available to use by all ages and ministries in the same way that West Campus has uh, been used by various ministries, including youth and young adults, uh, adult and senior adult ministries. So that's going to be available. Now, If you weren't here and able to take in the vision address last weekend, uh, I want to encourage you to do so. Just go online to our website. And a word to our community group leaders, uh, we want to encourage you to use the sermon study guide, which you're going to find online as well with your community group. Now, I do want to say that um, uh, I am so encouraged by the overwhelming positive response and support that we've received so far Uh, from so many of you and the encouraging number of commitment cards uh, that have already come in. It's a huge step of faith and uh, will require all of us um, praying about this and all of us joining together to do what God's calling us to do. Now, as I said last week, in a church of our size, we may not all agree 
on what our strategic priorities should be as a church. But I hope and pray that we will not allow, you know, secondary issues like buildings uh, sow seeds of discord among us, uh, but that we would continue to uh, be united around the main thing. And the main thing is just to worship and to glorify our Lord and to, to introduce uh, people to Jesus and help them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's the main thing. That's where our focus needs to be. And then just one more thing. If Center Street is your home church, if this is the, 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 the church that you look to for uh, spiritual feeding and, and direction and all those kind of things, uh, then I hope and pray that you will pray for uh, uh, the leadership and ministry of our church and that you will support the mission of our church with your time, the talent and the spiritual gifts that God has given to you and, and, and also that you'll support it with your uh, finances and that you will do it in a way uh, that the Bible calls us to in First and Second Corinthians, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but actually cheerfully and in keeping with your income. But having said that, I want to be as transparent as I can and say that my heart, of, heart motivation in the series that, of messages that I'm about to give over the next few weeks is not, and I, and I really mean this sincerely, it's not to arm twist you into giving uh, or giving more to our church or to give to our building initiative. My heart motivation for this series of messages is the same as it is for every message I deliver, and that is that as a result of the time that we spend together in worship, right, what we're doing right now, that we, when we leave, we would know God more intimately. We'd understand his character. We'd understand his promises and his principles and his commands and his calling on our lives more clearly. And we would leave committed to not just having heard the word, but that we would leave sincerely uh, asking the Lord to show us what he'd have us do about what we've heard from his word. You know, when I said yes to God's call to full-time ministry, I did so with the conviction that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the source of eternal life. That only he can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And that the only way to truly know him and to experience the full life that he offers to us is to be all in. To be fully devoted to him. Partial devotion, partial surrender will never result in us knowing Jesus fully. I have failed to live up to that many times, but I'm convinced it's the truth. And as long as he gives me breath, I will never stop declaring it. I will never stop seeking to live for Jesus, all out for Jesus in my life. And I will never stop challenging our church to live fully devoted lives for Jesus Christ to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love.
And so it's with that in mind, let's just stand and dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church, the reminder that you're building your church. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, what it teaches us about life, what it teaches us about who you are and the kind of relationship we can have with you. And Lord, I just pray now that you would um, open our hearts, you would open our minds to what you want to convey to us today and you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The story is told of a pastor who was walking through an upscale community when he noticed a young boy jumping up and down on the front porch of a large, beautiful home. The young boy was trying unsuccessfully to reach the doorbell that was set up higher uh, next to the door. The pastor felt sorry for the young guy, and, and so he proceeded to cross the street, get up on, walked up onto the porch, and then he vigorously rang the doorbell for him. And then he stooped down to the little guy and he said, there you go, young fella, now what? And this little guy looked at the pastor with a toothless grin and he said, now we run like crazy. <laughs> you know, in life, it's always wise to know why we do what we do. The reality is many people haven't stopped to consider what they're giving their life to and why. I saw evidence of this not too long ago in a conversation I had with a young woman who sat next to me on a flight. When she told me she worked for a very successful, well-known international corporation, I told her I'd read that her company was a great place to work at. And I asked her if that was her experience. And she said, you know, I'm conflicted in how to respond to your question. Because on the one hand, I work with really smart people. And that's challenging and it's exciting. But on the other hand, we all work ridiculously long hours. And the pace in our workplaces is horrendous. She went on to say, I'm not sure I want to do this for the rest of my life. But then again, I'm not sure what I want to do with my life. I mean... I want to do something meaningful, but truthfully, I haven't got a clue of what that might be. We talked for the better part of an hour, and in that time, she also revealed uncertainty about a relationship that she was in. And then she went on to talk about a number of other areas in her life that she was uncertain about. She indicated that she was a Christian, but not a practicing one. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, but she was a Christian and that lately she'd been looking into the philosophy of minimalism and also dabbling a bit into Eastern religions and found some of uh, their teaching and ideas interesting but not overly compelling. Near the end of our conversation, it became clear to me that her story is so similar to the stories of many others in our culture today. She was bright. I mean, she is bright. She's gifted. She's successful. But when it came to the big, important questions of life, 
She didn't know what she believed, even where to turn or who to trust. I said, you mentioned that you have a Christian heritage. Have you ever seriously looked into the life and the teachings of Jesus? And she said, well, not really. And at that point, I shared a bit of my story with her, how Jesus had been, has been my friend, how he's been my rock, he's been my guide in life, even as a result of my journey through cancer. And I challenged her to really pursue knowing Jesus. So that, I said, you know, in 30 to 40 years from now, you won't wake up one day and discover that you gave your life to all the wrong things. And that the only thing you know for sure is that you really don't know anything for sure. I said, that's really a recipe for despair. I said, Jesus made a declaration that requires a response from every one of us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he declared that he's the way to eternal life, something that she was totally uncertain about. He declared that he's the way to a full, satisfying, and a fulfilling life. And if, spiritually speaking, you want to know where true north is, he's it, because he claimed to be the truth. I said, now you may come to the conclusion he's not, but given his claims, given the fact that almost everyone on the planet believes Jesus was a profound teacher and a great person, given that there is overwhelming, compelling evidence that he's alive, that he actually rose from the grave as he said he would, given that hundreds of millions of people will testify that their lives have been radically transformed by others, and given that you have a lot of uncertainty and unanswered questions in your life, I think you owe it to yourself to go back to the roots of your Christian faith and investigate who Jesus is, what he taught and claimed, and pray that Jesus would reveal himself to you. Because if you really do this, I believe he will. And I believe you're going to discover, as I have, that he's far more than just a great teacher. You're going to discover that he is Lord and God. You're going to discover that he created you and he loves you. And he's someone in whom you can trust. At the end of the flight, I gave her my business card encouraged her to tune into our services, kind of hope she is, and uh, told her I'd be praying for her. Now, last time you'll recall me saying that in a recent Angus Reid study, it showed that even though the vast majority of Canadians say they believe in God, most of them have no idea who God is or what he's like. In other words, like this young woman I talked to, they really don't know God. And consequently, they have no true north, as it were. They have no bearings. They have no basis for truth. They go through life 
uncertain about most things in life. Now, Jesus came to be true north for us. To not only help us to be set free from our confusion, our fears, and regrets, but also to show us how to live and experience life to the full. When Jesus came, he began to teach about the kingdom of God. And as he did, he would often compare it to the kingdom of this world. And in Matthew 6, 33, he said, But seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom. You see, every kingdom has a king. And Jesus essentially says here, you have to make up your mind which king you're going to live for. You can live for the Lord or you can live for yourself or some other earthly king or some other earthly philosophy. If you don't consciously embrace Christ as your king and become fully a part of his kingdom, by default, you are part of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world attempts to convince us in various ways that happiness, success, and fulfillment is found in living the good life. A life filled with money, sex, and power. This earthly kingdom boldly asserts that it's all about you. You deserve to be happy, so look out for number one. Don't suppress your desires. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, buy it. Don't worry about debt. If giving promises to reward you somehow, like winning the lottery, well, then by all means, give. If helping others makes you feel better about yourself, if it releases some of the guilt you feel for spending most of your time and money on yourself, or if it causes others to look up to you and admire you more and serves your ego really well, well, then by all means, serve others. Another message that this elusive kingdom machine, machine guns into our minds is your value as a person is linked to what you do for a living, what you own, what you wear, what you drive, and where you live. The more power, status, and stuff you have, the more respected you will be, and the happier, content, and satisfied you will be in life. Now, the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about in Matthew is polar opposite to that of the kingdom of this world. You see, whereas the kingdom of this world says it's all about you, the kingdom of God says it's not about you at all. Rather, it's about the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God who loves you more than you'll ever know, the God who knows you better than you know yourself. Whereas the kingdom of this world is all about seeking the approval and the admiration of others, the kingdom of God is all about seeking to please God and God alone. Whereas the kingdom of this world is about getting and accumulating wealth and stuff, the kingdom of God 
is about giving and being sacrificially generous. Now, sadly, most people in our city and our nation will live their entire lives without ever really thinking about what I've just shared with you. They will live their entire lives ignoring Jesus and the kingdom he came to establish and just follow the socially accepted values and mores and priorities and beliefs and morals of the kingdom of this world. Even more concerning, however, is that many people who call themselves Christians will say that they know and that they love Jesus but will live most of their lives attempting to serve and worship two kings at once. King culture and King Jesus. Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus said it's impossible to serve the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world at the same time. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some Bible versions say you cannot serve God and mammon. And I really like that translation better because it includes, mammon includes more than money. Mammon includes those things that our culture would define as success. And of course includes money, but also includes things like power and position, fame, possessions and even people and pleasure that we put ahead of God. These are all potentially counterfeit gods. In this passage, Jesus wants us to understand when it comes to what we have and what we're pursuing in life, we must make a choice. We can serve God or we can serve mammon. Notice Jesus does not say you must not serve two masters. No, he says you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible to serve both. We have to decide who we're going to trust in this life. You see, we all serve some sort of God, even if that God is ourselves. We all serve someone. And Jesus says our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing devotion. And that there is nothing so hurtful and insulting to the Lord than to take Jesus' name upon us and then go out and live a life that clearly demonstrates that we are more in love with the counterfeit gods of this world that essentially he created and we're more in love with that than we are with him, the creator. William Barclay has said, Surely there is no better description of a man's God than to say that his God is the power in whom he trusts. And when a man puts his trust in material things, then material things have become not his support, but his God. You see, our values 
our financial decisions, what we invest our time and our talents in are all a reflection of who we believe and are trusting in. God sees them as inseparable. And so if we're going to break free from the selfishness and the greed, if we're going to live fully devoted uh, lives um, for Christ, we need to understand and make a decision about who we will really trust in. Which leads me to ask, which kingdom are you really living for? Now I realize we live in the real world, we have bills to pay and all the rest. That's not what we're talking about. The Bible talks about being in the world but not being of the world, not embracing the, the, the culture and the values of the world, to think differently. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Even in our workplaces, we have very real work to do that may be completely devoid of anything that's Christian, so to speak, but we still take Christ to our work, don't we? So which kingdom are you really living for? Which king are you really trusting? Christ or our culture? For example, take the area of success. Who do you trust for? Who do you trust in terms of your definition of success? Do you trust Christ or our culture? How do you define success? Well, here in Matthew 6, Jesus helps us discern where we're really at by teaching us what it means to trust God and trust God alone, to live fully in the kingdom of God. First of all, trusting God alone means you find your identity and your significance in Him. Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the word treasure is a very broad term which includes much more than money. Anything or anyone can be your treasure or your idol if you value it as such. And we talked about some of those a moment ago. Now make no mistake, Jesus never said any of those earthly treasures are wrong in themselves. He said they're dangerous because we might sell out to something that doesn't last. He's warning us not to allow earthly treasures become the basis of our identity or our significance. You see, the real danger of treasuring earthly things is we allow what we have or what we don't have to tell us who we are. It's letting our six-figure income, our position in the corporation, our degrees and our trophies tempt us into believing we are important and successful. While on the other hand, letting our low-paying job and our lack of education and our small apartment and our rusted-out jalopy tempt us into believing that we are unimportant and of little significance. 
You see, that's why we get so upset when things that we treasure are lost or are taken away from us. Why we struggle with being generous or why we get upset when pastors talk about money. Because our identity is all wrapped up in our treasure. And the thought of losing it, the thought of giving it up, really upsets us. Gerald Mann asks, can you be irrespective of what you have? Do you have to have to be somebody? If you lost everything, including your money, your trophies, your degrees, could you still be somebody? In other words, what's the source of our identity? Is it God the creator? Or is it the things that he created? So let me be clear. As Christ followers, our identity is based not on what our culture says we are. Our identity is not based on what other people say we are or think we are. No, as Christians, our identity is based on who Jesus says we are. And he says, we are his children. We are a royal priesthood. We are children of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator, sustainer of the universe. We are precious children whom he died for. Now, in verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart follows what you treasure. And if your identity is based on earthly treasures, your heart's going to worship those things. And you're going to worry about those things. And you're going to resist like crazy giving up those things. On the other hand, if you trust Jesus, I mean really trust him, and you base your identity on him, then your heart will be attached to him. You will hold earthly treasures loosely with an open hand, thereby freeing you to put the interests of others ahead of yourself and to be generous. So first of all, trusting God alone means you find your identity and your significance in Him. Furthermore, trusting God alone means you embrace His eternal perspective. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus uses our physical vision here as a metaphor of spiritual vision. And he's saying, what you treasure in life, how generous you are in life, depends in large part 
how clearly you see this life through God's eyes or from God's perspective rather than from your limited earthly perspective. If you believe that this life is all that there is, uh, you know, you die, your light goes out, and that's it, you'll have little reason to put the interests and the needs of others ahead of yourself or to be sacrificially generous. You know, unless you're a hedonist and, you know, it really strokes your ego, um, you know, to put the interests of others ahead of yourself. At the end of the day, you're still putting yourself ahead of others because it's all about you. Christ's followers have an entirely different perspective because they realize it's not about them. They also realize, as Randy Alcorn says, that we see this life as the preface, not the book. We see this life as the preliminaries, not the main event. We see this life as the tune-up, not the concert. And because we see differently, we live differently. We invest differently. We have different values and priorities. And we do so without apology or regret. Because it all makes perfect sense to those who have an eternal perspective of life. Suppose my wife Gwen and I were to plan a two-week trip to Europe. And in preparing for that two-week trip, uh, we told our family that we were selling our home, our vehicles, we are moving all of our clothes, furniture, and our money to Europe. Now, if we did that, they would be some concerned about the state of our mental health, and rightfully so. I think they're concerned about our mental health as it is. They'd be concerned because they know that when you go on a trip for a couple of weeks, you take along enough money to cover your anticipated expenses for that two-week period of time. And a suitcase for me and six for Gwen. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, hun. But they know that because they're aware that our real home isn't over there. It's here in Calgary. But you see, that's just an illustration of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if your permanent home is in heaven, if you're going to spend forever there, and only a hundred years or so here on earth, and that's optimistic... It makes no sense to store all of your treasures here on earth, but to send most of them ahead to your real home. But you see, whether or not we actually live this way all comes down to the same question. Do we believe and trust Jesus or not when he says do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But 
store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do we trust him in that or don't we? Now, if I were to ask how many would put their hands up and say, yes, we do. We do trust Jesus in this. We'd probably get many hands raised because after all, we are in church. We're all feeling pretty spiritual, right? But if we're honest, there are times we live like we don't believe him. I would be lying if I didn't admit that I still struggle with this from time to time. When we see others living the good life, purchasing the latest and the best, when people we care about think that we're absolutely nuts being sacrificially generous with our time and with our money, investing our lives in the eternal things of God rather than earthly things, investing in people rather than things, it's so tempting to lose our focus and our resolve. Jesus says the key to being generous and to avoiding lapsing back into self-centered thinking and greed and materialism is a singular focus, keeping your eye on the Lord and his eternal kingdom. Having a singular eternal focus involves reminding yourself often that there are only three things that you can bring with you to heaven. Only three. And that is your friendship with Jesus, those people that you've introduced to Jesus, and the things that you did, the work you did in the name of Jesus, not your glory or in your name, but his name. That's it. Everything else will burn one day. Having a singular eternal focus involves reminding yourself often of the day you stood at the deathbed of someone who had everything except God. And how you realized in that moment that immortality is not found in the building of an empire or by having your name etched on a trophy or a building or the size of your bank account or your picture on the cover of a national journal because empires fall, buildings collapse, and the famous are eventually forgotten. Having a singular focus will involve reminding yourself of the day you heard about the tragic shooting of 17 students and staff in Parkland, Florida. Or the horrific accident that took the lives of 16 hockey players and others associated with the team in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Or the collapse of the financial markets in 2008-2009. And you realize, perhaps for the first time, that true safety for you and for your children and your family, true financial security for you and those that you love cannot be found on this planet. It can only be found ultimately in God. Folks, trusting Jesus alone involves keeping your vision clear. Focusing on him and having an eternal perspective in life. And then finally, trusting God alone means you serve and you surrender to him alone. 
In verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And then in verse 33, he tells us which master we need to serve. But seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these other things that you fret about and lose sleep about, they'll be added to you. You know, friends, the reason the kingdom of God and the church is having such limited impact in our world, the reason that we feel, we often feel, that evil is winning over good, the reason we often feel that falsehood and deceit is winning over what's right and what's true is because far too many people who call themselves Christians are trying to serve both King Jesus and King culture. Because they're pursuing and worshiping the counterfeit gods of this world while at the same time attempting to pursue and worship the true God. And church, make no mistake, as long as we attempt to serve both, we will never know or experience God and the full, free, victorious life he promised us. We'll miss God's best for us, and we will miss the faith-building adventures he's ordained for us to experience. Nor will we experience the fulfillment, the satisfaction that God promises us when we are fully devoted to him. But perhaps even more tragically, we won't see the full impact we could have had as individuals or the full impact we could have had together as a church. Let me get real practical for a moment. I'm sure you've all heard someone say, even some who say they're Christians, that they don't support the church because the church spends far too much on itself, on their worship services, their buildings, their staff, and so forth. In other words, they say, that the church's priorities are all wrong. I want you to consider these statistics that my research assistant found this last week from Health Research Funding Org. It was eye-opening, incredibly eye-opening. And it really helps us to begin to get a handle on where the problem is. These stats are on Christians in the United States but they will help us to get a good picture of where things are at. I want you to reflect on this. The total amount of evangelical Christians in the United States, the total, sorry, the total income of evangelical Bible-believing Christians in the United States is estimated at $2.66 trillion. Every year, between one to three trillion in wealth. One to three trillion in wealth will change hands within the Christian community from one generation to the next. That's every year, one to three trillion dollars. Eighty percent of Americans give two percent of their income or less to any charity. Those who identify themselves as Christians give a whole lot more. They give 2.5% of their income 
which by the way, during the depression, Christians gave 3.3%. They gave more during the depression than they do now. 37%, a little less than half, of people who attend church every week and identify themselves as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians don't give any money to their church. Only 4% of Americans tithe. What's a tithe? A tithe is giving 10% of your income to your local church. If all Christians in America were to tithe, give 10% of their income to their local church, their local church budget would more than triple. And the combined total would be $139 billion. That would become available every year for additional ministry work. Now, what does that mean practically? That means the church would have the financial resources to eliminate global hunger, starvation, deaths from preventable diseases, be able to eliminate illiteracy in five years, solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in poverty-stricken third world countries, fully fund all overseas mission work, and still have around 75 to 100 billion dollars left over for additional mission and ministry work that I might, and I might add, additional facilities that are needed. Isn't it absolutely incredible the potential that we have as Christians to dramatically change our world, solve a lot of the poverty issues in our world through our giving? Now, folks, I realize these are U.S. statistics. And you've maybe been sitting there going, those Americans, oh, man, God help them. But you know, all the research that we're uncovering on giving in Canada reveals that in every area, we are less generous than the people in the United States. You see, the facts don't lie. Our world continues to be needy because we're simply not generous with what God has given to us. And we're not even talking about needing to sell everything or give everything away to meet the needs of the world. No, we're simply talking about honoring God's starting point for giving. Giving the tithe or 10% of our income. I know the tithe is not a legalistic requirement of the New Testament. I know we live in the age of grace. But Randy Alcorn says, in the age of grace, you would think Christians would want to give more than the people who had to give in the Old Testament era of the law. He said, the spirit of Christ and of the New Testament is that 10% is the starting point. It's the floor of giving, not the ceiling of giving. We get the privilege to give even more. A year ago, <laughs> can I just give a reflection? You guys aren't clapping at all. 
I, I just don't see a whole lot of enthusiasm out there. Why is that? <laughs> Too many of you are sitting there and saying, you're ticking me off, Pastor. <laughs> I can feel it. But anyways, <laughs> I love you. I love you. Uh, a year ago, I was talking with someone <clears throat> about the impact the global church and even our church could have in advancing the kingdom and in eliminating poverty and injustice if everyone were to give at least 10%. And he smiled and he said, Henry, you know, you're a dreamer. You're, you're dreaming. It, it just won't happen. And yet I want to ask you, if God can change an unkind, cruel person into a gentle person through the power of Jesus Christ. If, if God can change an angry, impatient person into a patient and peace-loving individual, if God can change a dishonest person into a person of integrity, can't he change a selfish, stingy person into being a generous person. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Giving at its core is a heart issue. It's not a money issue. If our heart's right, generosity will follow. This is a trust issue. This is an obedience issue. And every one of us have to sort this out with God and ask whether we're being obedient to Him. And then whether we can do it from a heart, a cheerful heart. And so even though I know I'm, I'm really meddling, I ask you once again, when you examine what it is that you're, you're giving your life to, which kingdom are, are you really living for? Which king are you really worshiping? When you look at your lifestyle, uh, your priorities, your values in life, the level of your generosity, in whom are you really trusting and living for? Christ or our culture? I'll never forget a pastor of a church in Chicago tell me about a giving pattern of a certain couple in his church. And though you would have never have known it to look at them because they dressed very plainly, their combined annual income was uh, right around a million dollars. She was a surgeon. He was a university professor. And after spending time in the scriptures and in prayer, they, they did a careful analysis of what they believed they needed to live a comfortable life. And then they decided that everything beyond that, they were going to invest into God's kingdom. Well, they decided to give around 90% of their income to the Lord's work. On top of that, every seven years or so, they took half a year off and they served in their specialties in a foreign country, paying for their own way. The pastor could see the look of kind of shock on my face because up to that point in my life, I'd never heard of such generosity. This was mind-boggling. He laughed. He said, I know, I know. 
He says, I was shocked too. But I guess it all comes down to whether or not we're going to believe Jesus and trust his word. This couple firmly believes that this life, is, it's, it's soon going to be passed. And only what's done for Christ is going to last. And that's what we invest in people. You know, stories like this are becoming more and more common in the lives of Christians everywhere, but also in the lives of people in our church. There are people in our church, you'll have a couple with two incomes, and I know some that have made the decision, we're going to live on one income. We're going to invest the other income uh, into God's kingdom. I know many people who are saying, you know what, we need this much to live, and we're making this much, and this difference, we're going to invest in God's kingdom. And sometimes that's way more than 10%. You see, these folks aren't just singing, I surrender all. These folks aren't just saying, give me Jesus, that's all I want. You can have all this world, give me Jesus. They're not just singing that, they're living it. If you want to experience the full and fulfilling life, if you want to grow in your faith, I mean really grow, if you want to experience true joy and, and peace and freedom in your life, then be all in with Jesus. Let go and surrender all to him. To surrender is to wake up each day and say, God, here I am. My hands are open to you. Please show me. Guide me through the scriptures. Whisper to me what you want me to do what you want me to say to this person, what you want me to give. Show me who you want to serve. True surrender doesn't involve trying to impress God or others. It involves trusting God to fill us, to empower us, to guide us, to meet our needs, and to live his life through us. Surrender is being all in with Jesus. It's based on the conviction that every heartbeat, every breath, every ounce of energy Every nickel, everything I am and have is a gift from his gracious hand and that he is a good God and that he is for me and that he has my best interests at heart. And therefore, I can completely trust him. This is what it means, folks, to love and worship King Jesus. This is what it means to live fully in his kingdom. I pray that this may increasingly describe each of our lives to the glory of God and for the sake of a world who are looking to us and who need the Jesus, who need the Jesus that we worship. Would you stand for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to the Lord. James says, don't just hear the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. I pray that that as you drive home, you'll, you'll talk about this as a family. This week you'll talk about it as a family or with your small group of friends, what this means for you as a family 
what this means for you as a person. But just take a moment right now and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? Just take a moment right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the reminder that the stuff of this world is yours. That you didn't create us, Lord, to be famous, to get rich, to have powerful positions, or to live in opulent houses. You created us, Lord, to have an intimate daily friendship with us. You put us in this world, Lord, to love people, to share with them what you have given to us. Thank you for the reminder that everything about this life is fleeting and perishable. That nothing done for the sake of this world can last. That only what's done for Jesus and for eternity is going to survive. I pray therefore, Lord, that all of us would not just have heard your word, but that we would purposefully invest the life, the resources that you've given to us in that which will last forever. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.